Hey everyone! You're listening to Hot and Bothered, Cultivating Sustainable Resistance with me, Vicki Abugalium. And me, Jordan Mays. Welcome to the show and thank you for tuning in. Today's show is titled, How We Sustain, Mutual Aid and the Environmental Justice Movement. This week, we want to talk about mutual aid, how it manifests a little, and how we can keep it radical and liberatory. Content warnings for this month's episode include camp sweeps and natural disasters, which are touched on briefly. Before we start, though, we would like to take a moment to acknowledge the land that we are on today. Again, we're recording on Ohio State's campus. And the land that Ohio State occupies is the ancestral and contemporary territory of the Shawnee, Potawatomi, Delaware, Miami, Peoria, Seneca, Wyandotte, Ojibwe, and Cherokee peoples. But specifically, the university resides on land ceded in the uh, 1795 Treaty of Greenville and the forced removal of tribes through the Indian Removal Act of 1830. Acknowledgement is just one step in recognizing and reckoning with U.S. history and the relationships forged on this land, and we need to go much further than solely acknowledgement. So today I would like to explain how Ohio State participated in the stealing of this land. As many people are aware, Ohio State is a land-grant university. Another name for this is Land-Grab University. And why is that? How did it come to be? In 1862, the Morrill Act was signed. This is also known as the Land-Grant College Act. This act provided grants of land to states to finance the establishment of colleges specializing in, quote, agriculture and the mechanical arts. So the act distributed public, so-called public lands, to raise funds for new universities. 10.7 million acres were stolen by the federal government from nearly 250 indigenous tribes and communities through over 160 violence-backed land sessions. It's stolen land. Ohio State is one of the recipients of the Morrill Act land. The federal government gave Ohio 630,000 acres of that land to sell to establish its state university. The U.S. paid $35,410 for the land, which Ohio then sold for $340,818, creating a return nearly 10 times the purchase amount. When adjusted for inflation, the university raised about $6,850,000. So when we talk about being on stolen land and land grab universities, this is what we mean. The land was stolen violently, bought and sold, and is now a center for profit making. The funny thing about a land grab university is that, especially at OSU, they like to talk about like, oh, we're a land grant university. We have a responsibility to engage with the community and all that. But what do most of the staff, faculty, and administrators even really understand about the implications of being on a land grant university? Something to think about. Mm. I'd encourage all listeners to take it a step further and study the specific history of the land that you occupy. Consider your relationship with that history and how can you contest it. Okay. 
now it's time to get to the show. First, let's talk about what is mutual aid? What is it? So mutual aid is helping those around you and like disrupting social structures and stigmas of expectation. Like we who like care for your interests expect nothing of like measurable value, but support and circumstances because mutual aid is a direct action in community self-defense. That is vital to understanding its liberatory potential and how it's the key to sustaining movements and societies. Mm -hmm. The need for mutual aid has always been present uh, this has been the backbone for communities of resistance for uncountable generations. Peter Kropotkin coined the term in response to a rise in social Darwinism. The idea that, quote, like, the survival of the fittest kind of framework should inform our social and political practices. Essentially demanding that our single mode in life is competition with each other. This fascist dehumanizing logic was used as justification for privatizing and the individualization of the commons and all of our commonly held property and social institutions, and has been held to bolster white supremacist principles through colonial practices of ripping up cultural touchstones and our interconnectedness. We often see a resurgence in mutual aid whenever we go through human and non-human made disasters, such as camp sweeps, floods, hurricanes, earthquakes, wildfires, building fires, in times like these, we have a tendency to expand our love and care outside the boundaries of the individual and family unit, and that is community self-defense at its finest. It's a way of life and a survival ensured by community and not the state, and there are countless examples. Um, in 2005, during Hurricane Katrina, the community members came together and created clinics and home repairs while the state was guarding stores and private properties bulldozing land so that it can be renovated after the disaster. These moments bring out opportunities for decentralized mutual aid and networks to shine and prosper. One group that was active in the region was Mutual Aid Disaster Relief. Mutual Aid Disaster Relief is, quote, a grassroots network whose mission is to provide a disaster relief based on the principles of solidarity, mutual aid, and autonomous direct action by working with listening to and supporting impacted communities, especially their most vulnerable members, leading to their own recovery. They build long-term, sustainable, and resilient communities, end quote. Yeah, and you can compare this to what the state does during times of disaster. Boo. Like FEMA, for example. Sure, FEMA was providing some relief mm -hmm. for some specific people. Already housed but received significant criticism for the way that they did this, of which we also criticize them for. For good reason. People were dying under their watch. Yeah, the programs for survival that the state will sponsor fall short every time to help vulnerable communities because they do means testing and they do not provide space for us to center ourselves so that we can take the action we need so that the aid is felt all around our region. That's one reason why communities must come together to aid each other, pooling resources and time in a way that can shift power relations by lessening our reliance on extractive models of assistance. When mutual aid disaster relief helps, they aren't just setting up their own aid stations, but looking at how to sustain local efforts that are already built on the needs of the community members who have been struggling together. Mutual aid disaster relief defines this kind of direct action as, quote, 
a political action aimed at achieving a specific goal and is carried out directly by an individual or a group without appealing to a higher authority for legitimacy. We are intentionally building towards a world where our efforts and investments don't go towards profit building for those that exploit our labor, but instead to go towards taking care of ourselves and those in our communities. Our vision is to be a part of a mass movement that creates an economy based on solidarity and prioritizing meeting our collective needs rather than making a profit for the wealthy. Mutual aid projects lessen our dependence on the system, effectively making a new world out of the shell of the old." End quote. When we come together to aid each other in obtaining food, medical assistance, emotional care, PPE, transportation, etc., we assert that economic models that don't function for the logic of profit but solidarity instead can thrive. We start to see the liberatory genius that is sharing our own material needs, building these relationships with each other and breaking down myths about how distribution, production, and consumption should go is an act of self-determination. Having consistency to see these systems thrive without the spark means we can build our own economies by taking from the capitalist system and giving as little as possible. That was beautiful, Jordan. And I think it encourages us to take a broad approach to what is included in mutual aid, like anything that brings us collectively towards our liberation via caring for each other could be placed under the mutual aid umbrella, even other forms of direct action. And I think it also shows that it's such a natural thing to do. Like you would do that for your friend. Absolutely. So, do it for my family. So why wouldn't right. we do it for the strangers? So on that note, mutual aid is not charity. That is something that gets forgotten, like at the surface level, I think. But um, it can also occur on many different scales of importance. Like just sharing resources among friends is mutual aid in a way. And so is redistributing, redistributing wealth in your community. But what needs to be clear is that mutual aid is mutual. It's not charity. Charity is when people in higher positions of power are like, quote, donating or giving people who are considered lesser than on a system of hierarchy the material things that they need to just survive without actually solving any of the underlying problems or like creating those networks of support um, to go past like just survival and mutual aid's not premised on any system of authority there's no minimum set of requirements in which you must qualify to receive aid for those unaware jordan and i assign each other readings to prepare for every show and <laughs> this month jordan included a zine from boise mutual aid which has a really good chart in it that details what mutual aid and is and what it is not. Like, it's not charity. Um, they describe charity similarly to how I just did, but they go into further detail about organizational structure of charities and how they don't challenge any status quo in this country. And it's definitely worth reading. Yeah, they're definitely also a great project to be looking into. I know that piece was written in like the early to late 2000s, and the group is still active in raising tent cities and fighting the city, like as Hell we yeah. speak. Most mutual aid projects like that have like either grown out of organic communities community association or direct aid projects that are being taken up um, the process of direct aid is different from charity as it takes away like authoritarian or puritan means of distribution 
that rely on like codified systems of oppress of oppression um, around who and what the consumer can be. But direct aid projects also tend to lack the relationship between the consumer and the producer of the goods and services. And that relationality that comes from the shared distribution process is vital to having sustainable social, economic, and political understandings of our material world. With conscious internal dynamics such as check-ins and constantly being in communication, we can avoid getting ourselves stuck in the model of direct aid or slip into charity-like power structures. Because one of the most ever-present lies of our society is that we must be competing until we're on top or at least have enough air to breathe. And it's not hard to see that logic as it is reinforced by social and political institutions from the municipal to federal level. It can be a tough world, and sometimes you have to just get stuff done for yourself. But this framework itself denies the ethos or purpose of coming together as a society itself. Like, What is the point of being a part of this society if I do not have relationships that mutually benefit me and my family and the collective power and well-being that comes with being interconnected and having self-determined communities. In an age of privatized resources, wealth, and land, we can break social, political, and economic stigmas by reaching over and past the neoliberal line of individualism. To care in this world is to see others as no more and no less than yourself and identify with the needs that are shared. Our time with others needs to be valued and not in a way that lets it be overrun by the hustle that needs to keep our head over water. To work on authentic mutual aid, our systems of production and distribution need to be responsive to the needs of the consumer and scaled up in sustainable means. We need to understand the flexibility that comes with being a consumer, a producer, and a distributor because we all have a point, purpose, and ability to have felt impacts in our surroundings. So we must be providing the kind of aid that allows people to grow and foster their own culture of success and not rely on the individual or family as our only means of subsistence. Caring for our community members in ways that allow people to focus on themselves and find their own autonomy is vital to having a resilient movement space where people can fight for their own freedom. For example, if we just took up the process of growing our region's food, and handling distribution in a way so everyone eats, we would be involved in a process that could separate us from capital-based markets and give us space to grow past our immediate material needs for nutrition into the space of addressing additional social problems. We can sow the seeds of new liberatory institutions that come from our own solutions and collective action. And those roadblocks to creating alternative infrastructure for ourselves become more manageable when we use our collective power and will. Cultivating networks of care comes in so many forms. Not only can we care for each other's physical needs, but mental and spiritual as well. And I'm going to get into that in the call to action this month. Um, but to truly create safe communities and institutions, we need to look at the root of the issues and not act like the state, which sloppily, like, quote, cleans messes. The state just band-aids everything without ever disappearing the reasons for suffering and oppression. It's like those memes lately about like the landlord special and home improvement where they just slap paint on top of some shit job and just move on. <laughs> Language of like cleaning up a mess presents those who cannot or will not conform to that cleanup as dirty or bad, not only in their action, but their character. And it's a tactic to dehumanize people 
without actually presenting something better. And if we dare to dream of something better, we often face demoralization by the institutions that oppress us. Let's look at another example. The Jane Addams Collective is an anarchist collective made up of social workers, psychologists who organize mental health programs, workshops, and longer interventions exploring a mutual aid-based understanding of mental health care, and programs educational and cultural events as well. In their piece, Mutual Aid, Trauma, and Resiliency, they explain ways that trauma is a tool of repression through social systems and how that leverage is a historical trademark of the state. They say, quote, If trauma has become the currency of modern-day repression, then resiliency is the weapon of the rebels, end quote. They go on by stating, quote, To develop utilize and share resiliency in individuals, groups, and communities, we must first understand what it is and what it isn't and how it works. The two most common definitions of resiliency are the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties, the ability of a substance or object to spring back into shape or elasticity. It's obvious rebels and resistance movements should expect to have difficulties inflicted upon them by their antagonists. And what should be just as obvious is that we should seek to rebound as quickly as possible and limit the contagion and ongoing effects. The more resilient a movement is, the more attractive it will be to those outside of it that feel threatened by the current power structures. It will also cause some division inside the power structure as it has to weigh the benefits or effectiveness of inflicting trauma versus the backlash or resilience. If the effectiveness of trauma is demonstrably shown to be less effective, the power structure's own control over its own participants comes into play, which can seriously weaken power structures. Building mental resiliency has often been likened to self-defense, but it's more than just that. Well-developed resiliency in a movement and community can be useful for recruiting those who are feeling anxious or scared in their current situation, which may or may not have anything to do with the power structure you're fighting against. For example, in Rojava, the Kurdish revolutionary forces in northern Syria received a lot of recruits from people fleeing forced marriages and domestic abuse, members of oppressed minority groups, etc., in addition to recruitment, resiliency can actually destabilize the opposing forces. Most actors in power structures, like officers, soldiers, and bureaucrats, may not actually benefit from the oppression, but side with the oppressors because of anxiety or fear of the outcomes of not being part of the structure. Resilient rebels and movements can weaken the ties of those not directly reaping the benefits of oppression." End quote. From this quote, we can see where alternative networks of care come in, and these networks need to be centered and intentionally sown so we can cultivate sustainable resistance and just keep each other alive and present. When we look at movement spaces, we cannot allow ourselves to get lost in some unnamed collective. It's extremely important to know what brings you joy in this work and why you're here. Otherwise, why are you here? And to bring that joy and passion and drive back to the collective to contribute it towards our collective liberation. There would be no group goals or missions if not for each individual caring for themselves enough to spread and share the love of themselves and with those around you. Through shared trauma from disasters and state repression to managing our own living conditions ourselves, 
There is a mutual understanding of our inherent connectedness as human beings that makes bonds strong enough to withhold the pressure of capital and landowner-based politics. But this kind of work takes a bit of time, and we should have these networks set up and available before disasters devastate our region or state policy and police make the streets unlivable. The more drastic effects of climate crisis will displace more people than our policymakers are willing to admit. All alongside diminishing public infrastructure and services for our own communities. We are leaving ourselves extremely vulnerable at this moment. So how does all of this talk about mutual aid play into the core topic of our show, which is environmental justice and the climate crisis? When we consider the forthcoming and present challenges related to climate change that Jordan kind of just touched on, it becomes pretty clear that we will need strong mutual aid networks to keep each other safe. In Ohio, we can expect an extended wet season, higher highs and lower lows, more heat waves, etc. And we're already experiencing this a lot. Thinking on this topic brings me back to this book that I read years ago called Palaces for the People by Eric Kleinenberg. It's a pop sociology book, and it really spends a lot of time talking about libraries and functioning social institutions. Um, I really can't say for sure if I would totally sign off on this book at present since I read it years ago, but there's a section in the book about this really bad heat wave that struck Chicago in 1995 that I continue to return to and think about. So Kleinenberg talks about how strong social networks were literally the difference between life and death for people living in a lower income black community that did not have infrastructure strong enough to deal with the heat wave, but they did have a strong social infrastructure. And what kept people safe was their community. Others opening their homes or workplaces or public indoor spaces to those who did not have shelter from the heat, including those whose home air conditioning had failed under the extreme circumstances. People were so close with each other that they knew who to check on, who might need help, and stuff like that. I mean, it sounds very climate changey, because it is. We can also look to those organizing on the ground in Flint, Michigan, which is still without a full 100% coverage in clean water who continue to fight against all odds to keep each other safe and healthy in the face of a government who failed them at the local, state, and federal level. It was community members knocking on each other's doors about, like, what's up? The water's bad. Let's go get everyone some water purifiers. Let's, get, let's deliver bottled water to our neighbors. Let's make sure our elders who aren't watching the news or up to date know that they should not run their tap. And that came from their own pockets until others around the state and country started mobilizing to provide direct aid. The same type of aid networks appeared in Toledo during their most recent water crisis, Toledo, Ohio. But at present, those mutual aid networks are still as necessary as they were before the crisis emerged, because the residents rightfully still have some skepticism about the water quality or trust in the new pipes. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who's worked on the Flint crisis, who would not tell you that mutual aid is necessary to our survival. Both of these examples highlight the intersection of environmental justice, environmental racism, and mutual aid. Even more examples exist, like we talked about after natural disasters such as Katrina and mutual aid disaster relief networks that emerge in those cases as well. And in environmental justice organizing, mutual aid, just like a grounding in abolition that we have talked about, should be central to what we're doing. When we're trying to build a long, sustained resistance against forces of oppression, which are decimating the planet, it's important to start building before disaster strikes. For far too long, the environmental movement in the United States has been racially and class exclusionary, 
rather than being centered at the root of injustice, which comes from the constructs of race and class. Colonialism has generationally robbed us of our ties to the land around us, and that means replacing mutually beneficial consumption habits with extractive and transitionary ones. So we have to contest that ideology in all of our moves. Engaging in mutual aid flies directly in the face of colonialism. And on another note, this is just a thought I've been having lately, but mutual aid is something that can also be engaged in with the more than human world and the earth as a whole. I would consider the earth as a participant in mutual aid. I mean, we're supported by the natural world to meet all of our needs. And in return, we must be an intentional stewards of the land that we hold relationships with. And I'm 100% sure this is not my own original idea, but it's just something I have been thinking about as I commune daily with the earth. And so as people are interested in environmental justice, let's not forget the deepest, most loving mutual aid relationship we should have, which is with each other and with this earth. So today we're interviewing with Ramon from Justice, Unity and Social Transformation. Hello, Ramon. Hello. Hello, Jordan. Howdy. Um, Ramon, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization? Sure. I'm a community organizer who works to relieve injustices by providing and building a sustainable basis of power through creating impactful relationships. Just was co-founded in 2020 after participating in the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor rebellion with a goal of continuing our activism and shedding light on, many on the many injustices within Columbus. And what about you? Who is Ramon? How'd you get started? So I got started in 2018 um, doing mutual aid work with my without my organization because I wasn't in one at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, I was just meeting people's needs in the street and trying to take care of the population that was uh, houseless. So I started off by giving out free meals as well as just any supplies that I would come across. So that's a good way to show how mutual aid has looked like to you. Um, and how, how it's had a felt impact on you and your organizing and those who are around you. How is like this concept and and practice? How has like this concept and practice like actually affected your own like political, economic, and social frameworks and like how you view and walk through this world? Good question. So mutual aid looks like the the meeting of the needs of those who are vulnerable as well as uh, oppressed and giving them the necessary tools to uh, overcome that oppression. When it comes to like the political framework or like how it's just changed my own mind, mind frame, uh, it's done that by just making me realize my own position and where I take up space. So today we wanted to highlight the connection between radical self-care and communal aid and finding that connection in our practice of mutual aid. How can you see these models being applied to like our local region and the survival programs and mutual aid programs that we have here? I think it come across in, in many different ways. One of the uh, the ways that that first can't comes to my mind is like community gardens. Mm. Um, I think we yeah. also need to just redefine like what self-care is. I think too much of the time we think self-care as perhaps just taking the day off or you know turning on a movie and just sitting down and relaxing but self-care can come in many different forms and i think just getting around the co your community and doing something that's extremely low risk but extremely impactful uh such as the community garden is a great way of doing that 
Are all three of us community gardeners? I am a community gardener. Same. It's a great way to de-stress Dude, and I, come together to create food with our families and our friends. So talking about these instances of like how to create authentic mutual aid um, and how like doing that in ways that are liberatory creates power horizontally and like a lot of the stronger mutual aid networks are built on relationships that are already existing inside of communities. So thinking about that, like how can our local projects take the energy outside of organized events that they have and what needs to be like present in these networks to build sustainable, robust survival programs. Oh yeah, that's a, that's an extremely important one. That's uh, the question. Yeah, that's the that's, <laughs> that's the, the one. Whole question. Uh, I mean, and I don't have to use many words to even get to say this answer right. It's like just go meet the neighbors, go meet the people of that community. That is going to be uh, the most impactful thing you can do. They'll tell you everything you need to know, yep. what their needs are. Um, some will even tell you how to accomplish those needs. Honestly. Um, but yeah, if you go out there and you meet that community and you see what they need, you'll be around forever. And then, like, does that build on itself? It does. It does. Because you'll end up meeting people who have something that the other person may need. And it just, it's a puzzle. And it'll figure itself all the way out if you take your time um, and if you're willing to grow with it. Right. So in the show, in this episode, we discuss the intersection between mutual aid and environmental justice. And we were wondering if you could comment on that intersection. Like, what are the main things that come to mind when you think about the environment, the climate crisis, and mutual aid? So many of the mutual aid networks, you know, they usually take place in um, communities that are without, such as without grocery stores or Mm -hmm. uh, lacking and just like overall lacking in housing or trash cleanup, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And I think that that's where the intersection really takes place is when you can bring in like the environmentalists to yes. who are going to have the community garden, or if you can get a group of people together to clean up the community, um, those things play off of one another in a really impactful way. I love that answer. Cause like I had a follow up question, which kind of gets at it. So like, I think something that's brought up frequently when we talk about environmental justice and like who really faces environmental injustice and environmental racism, Um, even though it affects all of us, it's like oftentimes people feel like there's already so many layers of oppression and other things to focus on that affect our daily lives. And like the environment can get pushed to the back. People think like, I don't have time to focus on this today because I need to like address all of these other things. So do you ever think about that? Like how do we move past that frame of thinking into a place where we would actually consider both of those things to be interconnected so it's like unavoidable when we're thinking about the fact that there's like a food desert in my neighborhood Um, environmental justice is part of that and also participating in mutual aid networks why why does there need to be a serve why does there need to be fresh produce available like how do we make that connection more clear for everyone I think that our mindset has to change on how we educate the population uh, that we're around. You know, too many, too, too much of the time we're over here just yelling names of books or videos that mm-hmm. the community needs to watch or read in, other, in order to be more informed. Um, but in reality, if we can come up with, the, with this knowledge and make it 
and change it in a way in which it's more acceptable uh, and relatable to the people that are affected by these concerns, um, I think everything, again, will just fall into place. So you take whatever the problem is, whether it's the ozone layer or mm -hmm. the sun and, you know, uh, global warming, and you say, hey, this is how this is affecting your immediate surrounding. And by doing that, um, and you don't even have to, you know, in, really relate that to environmentalism um, because you already know, you know it. Right. That person exactly. doesn't know it, exactly. but that's, that's the main goal. And then, like, you come to that understanding. Right, like, right. Later as a group. Right. And, you know, and, and if you, the longer you're around, the more information that the, that person will gain over time. But it's all about starting off really small and um just getting a little goal accomplished and that will eventually be followed by a bigger goal. And that big goal can be broadened out to just needing healthy communities. Right. Yeah. Not only for right now, but for not our children and our children's children. I love that because it's like, I mean, I don't know. The environmental narrative is, is something that definitely needs to be like reclaimed for one, but also we don't, need to use it all the time like i mean food deserts is one example air pollution is another one like everyone has asthma and that's a product of environmental injustice environmental racism uh -huh. capitalism all that stuff but like the point is people in your community suffer from not being able to breathe and that's that that starting point. 100%. And I just want to piggyback off of that point. Uh, last year here in Columbus, a paint factory oh, blew yeah. up, mm -hmm. right? But it was in a community where environmentalism wasn't the mindset of the people. However, they knew that because this paint factory blew up that they would be affected in some way, whether it was uh, having children or asthma or just breathing symptoms. But if we can take something that happened like that and then just give it to the people in a way that, in which they can combat it, uh, there's your environmentalist right there. They don't right. even know it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, oh, maybe we should just name the paint factory. I think it was like the Yankin Majestic Paint Factory um, on the south side? Correct. Right. And that, the south side has faced a lot of those types of, like, literal explosions. Right, right. So um, another thing we're wondering is kind of like, to go into this conversation about mutual aid, um, where can people provide direct aid to your organization with JUST and how can people come to engage in the mutual aid network or like what would you actually suggest that people do? Like if they wanna donate to you, that's one thing and then like what are other ways? Right, um, so our website is just614.org um, and then our Instagram is just.614 and Facebook is just 614. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's just dot 614 for Instagram. Correct. And then just 614 for Facebook. Yeah. 614 CBUS, I think. Like, you know, like it's one of those. I mean, if you look it up, it'll, sh yeah, it'll yeah, show yeah. up. Yeah, you just type it in. You'll find it. I'm sure of it. Um, but I would say don't go out there with the mindset of I need something massive to start, right? Just was built off of $200 <laughs> and it has served thousands of people. We literally started off with the spaghetti and chicken Alfredo, uh, 
hot meal that was actually a cold meal because we thought we could warm it up with sternos. Bad idea. <laughs> um, so, you know, we like had, but it started, right? Like the thing was like, we exactly. went out there, we that did the it. Point. Nobody right. got sick that I know of. <laughs> yeah. um, right, right. But starting just like go out there and start it. Um, and then like, if you don't have time to start up your own thing, because I know like a lot of people, they just want to say, Hey, I started this. Uh, come and volunteer, volunteer with some of these organizations um, that have the correct mindset of just putting the people first. You know, most of the time we get stuck in, I, I would say like the nonprofit complex yeah. of in order for me to really give back, I have to uh, get paid for the work that I'm doing, or I have to uh, go with one of these older standing organizations. And that's not really true. It's really the young grassroots organizations that are, uh, between like 15 and like just now 15 years and just now getting started that are the ones who have like the drive to do that work necessary for the change to occur and i kind of like really think this goes in with my next question which is kind of my last question or i don't know jordan you have anything off the cuff you want to ask but my question is like so we also talk about in the show how it's you know, the, the slogan of mutual aid is solidarity, not charity. Um, so do you have any comments on how people should show up to a mutual aid network? Like, what are the common growth points that people might need to experience when they first start engaging in it? I would say, um, let's talk about like the, like the main differences between uh, mm-hmm. mutual aid and a uh, charity mindset right a charity mindset um they have goals in terms of numbers that they want to uh serve but they also want to then continue serving that same number the next year uh which creates this long-standing cycle uh where people truly aren't they're getting help but you know they're not getting as much help as needed to overcome uh the current block within their life whereas the mindset of a mutual aid is literally to give this person all of the tools necessary to come o- to overcome that blockage while also politicizing them to understand their current position so that they can then go out there and uh and and give back to that mutual aid network yeah thank you so much thank you so much for your time jordan do you have any like closing questions i do that kind of touches on like seeing just operate in this city as a mutual aid and political organization and mm-hmm. like a big part of a lot of mutual aid networks is being able to give people a, the political uh, education enough to center their own autonomy and make those kind of political choices and like give that kind of context i'm very curious what you kind of want to see for just politically and growing its power base and different kind of antagonisms you think you'll be facing so as an organization like when we founded just uh we founded it under the idea of creating a sustainable power base that we believe that the city of columbus uh did not have when the rebellion kicked off in 2020 we believe that we didn't have uh the resources in terms of uh, I'll just like compare us with like a Baltimore, right? Mm-hmm. And Baltimore, when they kicked off, not only did every uh, organization have the necessary megaphones and uh, there, you know, all of the supplies needed to hold and bunker down for however long it was going to take. Um, they also had 
things such as drums, right? And yeah. things as huge speakers in which you could like broadcast a message. These are all things like Columbus really didn't have, you know, it was like bring it from your house and if we got it, we got it. Right. <laughs> um, so our goal was to uh, build uh, build those necessary resources. That way, if something ever kicked off here in Columbus again, we would be ready to supply uh, the masses of the people with those resources so that they could bunker down and we could hold on to this rebellion uh, as long as possible. Now, as far as political, we want political power. Um, of course, just is technically a 501c3. So we can't just come out here, say uh, we're voting behind blah, 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 or our goal is to enforce blah, 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 blah. <laughs> However, uh, we understand that this voting system uh, doesn't work. Yeah. Right. So it wouldn't even matter if we were out there saying this is what because we got the we got the power of the people. That's what we're going after. So right. we don't really care uh, in terms of putting a politician forth. What we want to do is politicize the people around the politician so that these politicians are held accountable. And hopefully, you know, one day the people will be able to create their own system of uh, politics that empowers them. Yes. Lovely. The revolution will not be electoral. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, okay, well, thank you so much again for joining us. Um, do you have anyone you want to shout out in the episode? Like we kind of do shout outs every like closing. Uh, who are the other co-founders? Yeah, for sure. That's a very <laughs> important. Yeah, let me yes. not leave here without saying the other co-founders. So there's uh, Audrey, Abraham, uh, Heather, Faith. Um, those are the main co-founders of Just. Oh, and Leah. I almost forgot Leah. Look at that. Yeah, <laughs> don't forget her. Thank you and. We really appreciate your time. I kind of want to follow up on last month's call to action. Did y'all look up your pipelines around your house? I live so close to one. It dodges my house by like 0.2 miles. Yeah, that's crazy. I also wanted to follow up on another prior topic we discussed. Um, some Monsanto action, uh, which is an agricultural chemical company that has produced evil amounts of poison in the state of Ohio as well. Um, we wanted to elevate a win against this polluting capitalist enterprise and relate it back to our previous discussion about Warren County and polychlorinated biphenyls. So the Ohio Attorney General, Davey Ost, reached an $80 million settlement on March 24th, 2022 with Monsanto, which is now forcing them to clean up their mess and environmental damage in Ohio from PCBs. Let's go! 
According to the Attorney General, the state has been pursuing Monsanto in this case since 2018. The money from the settlement will be placed in the Ohio EPA's account and designated to mitigate future environmental hazards. Yeah. So my first question about this is, like, who has control over those accounts? Um, They're establishing an advisory board to determine how the funds will be utilized across the state. But I don't know. I've read some articles and I'm also reading a book right now about the EPA. And the vibe is that the EPA is truly a captured regulatory body that is controlled by the same industry that the settlement is against the agricultural chemical industry. (laughs) So, I mean, look it up. Uh, Let us know what you think. In another update, and this is a specific call for direct aid, the first collective warming station that has been held inside of the old First Presbyterian Church on Bryden is in need of aid. On Tuesday, March 29th, a disgruntled church member brought two armed security guard, just people that were raised in the church, and forced everybody to leave. There's been a temporary tent city set up around East Mountain Carpenter with plans to relocate as soon as possible. This is a direct example of taking care for others in our region into our hands and not allowing state narratives to corrode our power. More information can be found at First Collective 614 and at cedar.oh on Instagram and on Twitter at First Collective and at I-N-N-A-T-E-O-P-T-I-M-I-S-T and Nate Optimus and the Cedar underscore Ohio Twitter accounts for some updates on where those camps are at the time of listening. And if you can show up with resources... And your time to give to the camp, if it's still there, then do that. Maybe we could do two calls to action this episode, too, because I want us to share something really tangible like the first camp that we just talked about and also especially just as well from the interview. But I also want to invite listeners to like really reflect on what mutual aid is and how you can practice it in your own community. Um, So for me, my call to action to listeners to this month is to look at your life and your support network and ask yourself like, What is missing in your informal social infrastructure? We're trying to cultivate something sustainable here, and that means that people want and need continuous access to radical collective community care. So ask yourself, uh, do my friends and I and my surrounding community need a time and place to hold and discuss the challenges we face? Like, what does that look like? A weekly cafe gathering? Do we need an accountability space for each other? What does that look like? Do we need like a monthly library room reservation? What do we want to build? And in what space can we do that? Or do we just need to eat together and practice some caretaking of each other? Uh, In my personal life, I take up these questions all the time. Cultivating community is a long and loving process. 
So be gracious to yourself and how long it might actually take to build a sustained, cultivated space like this. And the gifts that you will receive in return for planting a seed are endless. But you can't just wait for someone else to do it. And you don't have to start by, like, setting up a distro. Like, like just like what Ramon was saying, start small and see where it will take you. Talk to your neighbors. Mutual aid's a lot of different things and starts and changes shape along the way. So ask yourself... What do we need for liberation? All right, you just listened to Hot and Bothered, Cultivating Sustainable Resistance. We would like to take a moment to acknowledge folks and organizations who have worked on and inspired the production of this episode. I'd like to thank Jordan Mays, Vicki Abigailian, Marissa Twig, Samuel Holen-Smith, and Jacqueline Fleming. And Ramon. And another shout out to Mutual Aid Street Solidarity at Mass Ohio. Here to serve at here to serve, H E E R, just at just.614. Food Not Bombs at FNB underscore produce underscore serves underscore central underscore Ohio. Trash People at Trash People LLC and the First Collective at First Collective 614. Last thing, we are on Patreon. And if you would like to support our efforts to produce this show, you can do so on patreon.com slash hotbotheredohio. This is all volunteer this is all volunteer work and send us some funds. Okay, bye. Bye. Adios. See you next month at four PM on Verge and six, 6 PM, PM on WCRS. And whenever you want to on the interwebs. <laughs>